we find out that these people are ambassadors from a collaborative that was trying to improve the socioeconomic condition on this planet, and they did that by sending the entire cast of The Hills Have Eyes to clean up Dodge. <laughs> I mean, think about it. That's, yeah. that's what it looks like to me. It's amazing to me the parallels here, the vacant expressions and the joy unspeakable and full of glory aspect to all of this, where all of a sudden everyone is just happy, happy, happy because this dude has taken their pain away. Honestly, if I'm gonna be fair about this, he's a bit more honest than most of your average cult leaders out there. He's at least willing to attempt to provide proof, or at a minimum, he hopes that in the end, he'll have that proof to provide. And just like Shakari, the concept of a loving God exists only in the minds of believers. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. We're back. <laughs> And uh, I guess we should probably tell people what's been going on here. We promised them an episode last week. And yeah. there is, there is, in my opinion, a legit excuse why they didn't get one. Yeah. So just to get everybody up to speed, um, if you listened to the last episode, you know that I was flying solo because Shell was sick. Then we took a week off for really what was one of the better road test days that we've had. And I was real pleased. I was riding on a high from that. And then as things progressed over the week, well, after dodging it for two and a half years, Shell comes down with COVID. And a day later, Spider comes down with COVID. So last weekend and the days leading into last weekend are just a kind of a big blur. Yeah. And... I had every intention of flying solo again with this episode because you were sick. And it just, you know, I could not get things together in my own head. Oh, no. Well enough to sit down and do this. And the movie episodes, you, know, you need two people. Yeah, I mean, really do. You still don't say a whole lot. No, sometimes I really just don't. But it's good having you there to bounce some things off of. It's always good having you over there to bounce things off of. But I think that the movie episodes, you know, with me droning on for two hours, you know, these, <laughs> these things can go long. Not all of our movie episodes have been two hours, but but they can go on yes. for a while. And the very thought of sitting here and talking about this with no feedback whatsoever just wasn't appealing to me. And I just, I couldn't get up the motivation. Right. And I'm kind of glad that we waited. And I'm yeah. sorry that we told people we would be back last week and we weren't. But I'm pretty sure that uh, you'll accept our excuse. So with that in mind, it's time to strap in and prepare for departure. Your hosts are here and ready to pilot this bird out of space dock. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And we are about to boldly go into an in-depth discussion of what I think to be one of the more underrated of the Star Trek movies. Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Yes, the story is kind of basic, and it's told in a way that just screams Shatner wrote this, but Harv Bennett cleaned it up nicely. But it definitely makes several valid points about the dangers of blind faith. What does God need with a starship? We'll have the answer to that question and more in just a few. But first, a brief acknowledgement of the elephant in the room. 
more parents killing their kids because Jesus, and grifters gonna grift because, well, Jesus. It's Christians behaving badly, Jesus H. Crime edition. So, yeah. yeah. And I can already see the look on your face. I'm not, I'm really not looking forward to talking about this either. Yeah. But I feel like we'd be irresponsible if we didn't. Right. You know, we're going to just put in our two cents about the whole thing with Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's not going to come as a surprise to anybody that we are as devastated by this as anybody yeah. else is. I can't add any more commentary to this than what's already been said, because for me, it's going to come right back to the same thing. This is a result of people sitting on their asses in 2016 and letting that idiot into the White House and giving him the opportunity to fill three seats on the Supreme Court. That's where all of this started, folks. If you're one of the ones that were sitting on your ass, thank you. And by that, I mean, fuck you. (laughs) Um, And for the women in the 27 already affected states by this, and there could be more, Mm -hmm. but on behalf of the women in those states, how about 167 million women strong fuck you? Okay. (laughs) If you're already tuning out because you're offended because I'm kind of targeting you on this one, you know what? I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. And I understand how harsh the language is there. I get it. But at the same time, what's being handed down to the women of America here is pretty fucking harsh, too. Yeah. And there's no reason why it ever had to happen. The only thing that we have left to do here is get to those polls and fill every possible position out there with Democrats who actually give two shits about women's rights, who give two shits about America actually continuing and stopping the um, the manifest destiny of the Republic of fucking Gilead here. Yeah. We live in one of the few safe havens that are left. Not much is going to change here in Massachusetts, mm. but the, the radical and drastic changes that have already begun and that are going to continue and get worse over time. People, we did this. We did this. Actually, do I even need to put myself in the hot seat with this? I fucking voted. Okay. As a collective, as a complacent collective, we did this. Yeah. And this is where complacency gets you. Now let's see where positive, proactive action gets us. Yeah. You know, primaries are happening. The, uh, the midterms are happening in November. And I'll just say it again, purpose right now to get off your ass and vote. Yeah. Because this is the only way that we're going to stave this off. We can't fix it. We can't change it. We can't unwrite this decision okay we can't do that but we can put people in power especially in those key states who could be able to turn the tides in their own states with some of this i'm not hopeful for all of it but some of it can wind up being resolved you know there are compromises that can be made there are ways to to sway people who may vote in one way to vote another but you know, when I think about the fact that only about a third of the people in this country wanted this in the first place, I really do honestly think that there is a simple solution to at least steering the ship into a better course here. And it just comes right back down to the same the same thing. Use your voice and put people in seats of power that actually care about the things that you do. And that's, that is really all that we've got at this point unfortunately it's all we've got it's kind of like when covid was a new thing and we just wanted people to mask up and people started refusing to mask up and then it became a matter of well we're just gonna have to vax our way out of this and we still haven't because two and a half years in 
And I just, I spent about two days barely coming in and out of consciousness and yeah. trying hard to sleep it off. So we're going to see aftershocks of those bad decisions in much the same way. We're going to see a lot of aftershocks of that bad decision to sit at home back in November of 2016. Unfortunately, it's water under the bridge. Yeah. And I've already said more than mm-hmm. I wanted to say about this. Uh, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm on TikTok sometimes. And I'm already seeing women get on there saying, I can't get my birth control replaced. Or there was, I read a story uh, today about somebody who couldn't buy condoms because the clerk at the store was a Christian and he wouldn't sell them to her. Okay, you know, go to another clerk. Yeah. I mean, at, it's, in, in that instance, there, there are immediate solutions. Yeah. But still, she was in line. There were people there. It's like, why did you have to do that? Why do you have to? Because they could. Yeah. And that's the, it's the exact same problem that we saw when that idiot got elected. It empowered people oh, yeah. to show their hate and to show the darkest parts of themselves. And all of a sudden, it just became okay again. And it's the same thing with this. Now... I said I I said I had my say on this, but I do want to give a shout out to all of these companies who are now expanding their healthcare benefits and making it possible for women to actually travel to the right. places where they can get these vital services. You know, the things that I think about the most are women with ectopic pregnancies yeah. and other health related problems that could basically kill them. Yeah. If they don't get them resolved, um, if they don't have access to vital services. And there are a lot of companies who are expanding their healthcare benefit to accommodate that. There are charities popping yes. up all over the place, raising money to help fund travel and other expenses for women who now mm-hmm. have to travel halfway across the fucking country to get an abortion yeah. or to get other women's health services because the uh, the narrow-minded idiots who run their states won't let them have access to it. So a shout out to these people who were forward thinking enough to have these things in place and introduce them literally the day after this idiotic decision came down. Yeah, definitely. So moving right along with the actual stories that you researched this week, yeah, it's uh, more bad news on the doorstep, people, but we're going to take one more step and talk about these two stories that basically make Jesus's true colors come shining through. (laughs) Yeah. I could almost overlook how damaging evangelical Christianity and its related cults are if their only victims were adults. But it never is just adults, unfortunately. So many children suffer from the delusions their parents hold. Eight-year-old Elizabeth Struz of Queensland, Australia, is one of those latest victims. The little girl needed insulin to control her type 1 diabetes. Lots of children all around the world live happy lives living with type 1 diabetes as long as they monitor their blood sugar and take their insulin. But for some reason, this wasn't good enough for the Christian cult her parents belonged to. Over the course of six days, Elizabeth's parents, Jason and Carrie, along with at least 12 other members of the cult called the Saints, withheld insulin from the girl. Instead, they sang and prayed to God that he would take over and Elizabeth would be healed. 
Instead, the girl soon died from the denial of insulin. This, because of course she did. Of course because she, she did. fucking needed it. Yeah, you. it's like, maybe he did take over by, you know, letting those people find insulin all those years ago. I know, right? It's like, it's been around since the early 1900s, people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, if you want to tag a god onto it, well, guess what? That was the solution. It's the same thing with the guy in the house and, and the flood and all of yeah. that. You know, first uh, first they send a dude uh, with, with a message about the flood. Then they send a dude in a boat. Then they send a dude in a helicopter. And then the guy drowns and asks God, well, what happened? Well, I gave you this. I gave you this. You gave, I gave you this. And instead, you just sat there and waited for me to provide. Well, yeah. Same thing. Same thing mm-hmm. happening here, except this time someone actually fucking died. A kid yeah. who's never going to get to grow up, never going to get to uh, to enjoy her wedding day, college graduation, anything that yeah. the rest of us take for granted. That's just fucking gone for her now because Jesus. Yeah. This took place last January. While Elizabeth's parents were arrested soon after their daughter's death, recently another 12 people in the church have been arrested in connection with it. Good. Speaking out about the arrest, Detective Acting Superintendent Gary Watch said, It will be alleged that 14 people in total allegedly made the choice to deny this young girl her right to medical care. The arrests are the result of a six-month investigation in which all officers involved were dedicated to ensuring those alleged to be responsible for her death are brought before the court. I don't care what you believe as an adult. The problem is once you bring kids into it, the stakes get higher. Definitely. Go ahead and treat your cancer with prayer. You're an adult. But give your kids their freaking medicine. And if you don't, and they die, you and anyone else who is there praying over them instead of getting, like, you know medicine or an ambulance, they should be treated as murderers. Abso-fucking-lutely. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, because that is precisely mm. what this is. Yeah. You denied a child vital medicine that was going to keep her alive, and instead you chose to let her die while you waited on your God to act. Yeah. No, something needs to be done about that. Yeah. Elizabeth had five other siblings living at home with her parents, and her oldest sister, 23-year-old Jade Struz, has been trying to get custody of her younger siblings. Jade left the church at 16 after coming out as a lesbian. She's been sharing her story with the media, and those children would definitely be safer with their older sister than staying around the other cult members. Oh. I mean, obviously. Obviously. I mean, in any place is going to be safer than around those fucking cult members. Yeah, right. What I mean, what else can I say about this that I, I haven't know. already said? And what you've already said, you made the point that this is this is a straight up case of murder, and I do hope that the authorities there in Australia mm. treat this with the severity that it deserves to be oh, treated yeah. with. Well, they're in Australia. They're a little tougher on the religions down oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I Just mean, if this, if this happened here, it would be a crapshoot as to whether or not anything bad would happen to them at all. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm confident that their court system is going to do the right thing here and bring this, this poor child who never had a chance to experience life some semblance of justice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, and this next one. Okay, hold on to your seats, folks. 
just hold <laughs> on to your seats. This is, I mean, it. The, the part of me finds it funny. Yeah. But part of me just finds it infuriating too. But there's there's something funny about a lot of rage-inducing kinds of things yeah, too. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. And the grift goes on, but hopefully these churches are going to get caught. The FBI recently raided three churches in Georgia and Texas, all of which are affiliated with the House of Prayer Christian Churches, or HOPCC, and all of which were said to target soldiers specifically. Here's the story. A group called Veterans Education Success, which helps military members and their families with higher education, asked the Department of Veterans Affairs to look into HOPCC for potential GI Bill program abuses. The HOPCC runs seminaries and is located closely to several military bases. The alleged abuses include keeping students enrolled in the schools without providing them with an actual education, telling veterans applying for disability benefits to give any compensation to the church through tithes, engaging in mortgage fraud by taking out mortgages in parishioners' name while forging their signatures. you got to be kidding. Using their personal data and social security numbers, all with the help of in-house notaries. Oh, Jesus. Telling students to lie to VA inspectors by saying they were in class when they were actually doing chores for church leaders. Lying about when and where classes were being taught. Charging veterans higher tuition than civilian students. Lying about the ratio of veteran to civilian students. Lying to the VA about its teachers' qualifications. Using students rather than the staffers to recruit new members. Some of those students were as young as 16, as one girl said, which raises additional concerns. Yeah, you think? Yeah, a little bit. Purposely lengthening the curriculum to keep students enrolled for a longer period of time. Providing students with a certificate of completion, i.e. diploma, that was effectively useless outside the HOPCC. Sounds like a degree from BFCC. It does, doesn't it? Refusing to provide students their financial or academic records. Operating like a cult, humiliating students who question the church's leader, stalking and harassing church members who leave, and controlling the lives of certain members. While all of these are just allegations, the coordinated raids of three affiliated churches seem to indicate that they're trying to get evidence before the leaders can get their stories straight. You know, my anger-o-meter went up just a little bit with every one of those bullets. And it's just like, oh my God, just like, they gotta have like somebody with a real criminal mind. Oh yeah. Just like coming up with more crap they can pull. Of course. It's so crazy. And hiding behind this, hiding behind the religion. Now you see, in all fairness, these are not real Christians. Not by any stretch of the imagination are, are these, like, real Christians. These are, like, televangelist-level yeah. Christians, oh, yeah, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk a good game in front of people, but you know what their real agenda is, and you know what their motivations actually are. Right. According to Deseret News, HOPCC received at least $708,000 in post-9-11 GI Bill funding in 2018 alone. If they've been at this for years, and if the allegations are mostly accurate, who knows how much money they've conned the government out of over the years. 
There's also a website in which people who attended HOPCC can leave unverified stories about their own experiences. Many are detailed and damning. There are also former members sharing their HOPCC horror stories with local reporters. You know, I'm hoping that they take some of this anecdotal evidence and get these people to testify under oath. Oh, yeah. There needs to be more things like this. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to keep an eye on this one because it sounds like a crazy ride. Yeah, if there's more to learn about it and we find out more in the future, I definitely want to come back to this one. Oh, yeah. But, you know, grifter's going to grift. It's just that these people aren't as smart as your average Kenneth Copeland, and that's <laughs> yeah, why right? this is happening. Yeah. And on that happy note, we want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Network. Support starts at the $5 level. That comes out to just about a buck an episode, more when we take three weeks off. <laughs> but if you can help us out with your dollars, fantastic. If not, your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, and all the other things that help podcasts grow are going to help us out tremendously too. So wherever you're at on your journey of this thing called life, if you can help us out with money, fantastic. If not, just keep telling people that we're out here because contrary to uh, recent evidences, we are in fact still out here <laughs> and uh, and we still have a lot to say and we still have a lot to say like what we have on deck for next week. We're going to be talking about vacation Bible school. And I'm going to share some of my experiences because I was put Mm -hmm. in charge of the fifth grade in a vacation Bible school when I was a pastoral intern. And I've worked on a couple more, both before and since. And we're going to talk about that and just the sheer levels of indoctrination that happened and some of the themes, some of the scary themes that show up in VBS. And we're going to uh, just get into a little discussion about that. It's the middle of summer. And uh, I think that it's appropriate to Mm. be talking about this subject. I thought, I've thought about it in the past, but we, in the middle of a conversation about it, I said, you know, that's an episode and we should do it and we should do it soon. Well, why not just do it next? We're going (laughs) to go ahead and, and tackle that subject for you next week. And I'm keeping this part of things short and sweet because we still have a lot of movie to cover here. And I want to just dive right in with our review of Star Trek V. Captain's Log, Stardate 2931-4. I've reached the conclusion that stardates are every bit as random as most statistics, but they sound cool, so we feel compelled to mention one at some point in every movie or episode. I'm about to embark on a journey with my second-in-command, one that will bring us into the Great Barrier and beyond, and disappoint the shit out of everyone involved. (laughs) I like to give fair warning, after all. Number one? Yes, Captain. Is the movie queued up and ready to go? Aye, Captain. On screen. And with that, a white screen fades in on a desert hard pan. We're told that we're looking at a planet called Nimbus 3, the planet of galactic peace. And... Through the dust of the hard pan rides this lone horseman of the apocalypse hmm. who looks a lot more Jesus-y than I ever expected anything in a Star Trek movie to look. And he totally freaks out, this dude who's just basically there. It looks like randomly drilling into the hard pan, but he's doing something. We, <laughs> we're never told precisely what, but he's doing something. He's looking for something. And the local here also looks like one of the cast members from The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. So the horseman draws closer. And, of course, this spooks out the local, and he grabs a gun and points it at him. 
And the stranger speaks. He says, I thought weapons were forbidden on this planet. Besides, I can't believe you'd kill me for a field of empty holes. And this poor sorry soul, all that he can push from his lips is, it's all I have. And there's the uh, the open door yeah. that this person needs. We're about to find out just how weird and how manipulative this guy oh, is. Yeah. He looks at this poor soul and says, your pain runs deep. And the man looks back and says, what do you know of my pain? And all this guy can say is, let us explore it together. Each man hides a secret pain. It must be exposed and reckoned with. It must be dragged from the darkness and forced into the light. Share your pain. Share your pain with me and gain strength from it. And you know what? I heard all kinds oh, of messaging like this from the pulpit. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, your sins will find you out and that sort of thing. You, you need to come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner and that you need this thing called the gospel. It's all right there. And it works. I mean, the, the visual on this, the stranger embraces this man. I, I've seen stuff like this happen at altar calls. Yep. Where, you know, all of a sudden it's like, you know, the, the pressure releases and the person they're praying for, they just release this floodgate of joy and tears and all of that. And that's what's happening here. In a matter of moments, this guy's life has changed, okay? Or so he thinks. And he asks this enigmatic stranger, where do you get this power? And the stranger says, the power was within you. And you know what? It's the exact same thing as, okay, now you need to come down to the altar mm -hmm. because the power now lies in your hands as to what you are going to do with this gift that you've now been given. All of this was familiar to me in, in 89. It was wicked familiar. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was only four years into my evangelical journey, and I saw the parallels sitting here watching this movie and wondering what they were going to do to disparage it. You know, I'm sitting there firm in my faith and waiting for anything to happen here so that I can either cheer for it or laugh at it. Yeah. So um, so now, and, and of course, now we've got the Jesus gathering the disciples thing going on. Mm. Join my quest is what the stranger tells the man. And the local asks him, what is it that you seek? And of course, the stranger comes back and they do this too. They mirror your own words back to you. He says, what you seek, what all men have sought since time began, the ultimate knowledge. And to find it, we need a starship. And there's the setup for the rest of the movie. So our new convert here yeah. brings up the obvious elephant in the room. There are no starships on Nimbus 3. And the stranger promises him that he has a way to bring one mm. right to them. He has a way to bring one there. And when his new disciple asks him how, he doesn't give him a straight answer. He just says, here it comes. Have faith, my friend. And then he says, there are more of us than you know. And pulls back his hood, and there are the pointed ears. He's a Vulcan, but certainly not one who has passed colon R. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> There's no possible way that this guy ever passed colon R. And... Anyone who is um, a Trekkie like I am is going to understand what that one means. I mean, for fuck's sake, Cybok, and, and we've, we learn later that this guy's name is Cybok, and we learn more about him as we go. But he, he, he looks like a messianic figure. You know, just the, the, the kind of the white robe thing that he's got yeah. going on and the empathetic way that he has of talking. You hear Jesus in the movies talking this way to people all the time. Yeah. And he's playing the savior role 
to the hilt from the very first minute that we meet him. He's playing it like a tune, okay? And then, of course, he sits there and silently contemplates his own plan for a couple of seconds and starts laughing maniacally. He needs a starship. And he apparently thinks that he can just summon one there. And uh, before too long, we're going to learn what his plan is. But before we get into any of that, all of a sudden we jump cut back to good old planet Earth. And there is James T. Kirk climbing El Capitan in the middle of Yosemite National Park. Now, of course, back in the day, I didn't notice this as much. But God damn it, there are a lot of lens flares going on here. (laughs) J.J. Abrams would have been proud of this scene. And as many Star Trek movies do, we linger just a little bit too long on what Kirk is doing here. And we're watching him basically free climb El Capitan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a guy, he's, he's kind of advancing in years, but he's kind of got some energy in him if he's able to do this. Poor Bones, okay? Yeah, I know, right? Bones is like at the safety of the campsite and watching what Kirk is doing and just... You know, he's feeling more tense by the moment. And he's looking up at him and he says things like, God damn, you're responsible. Playing games with death. You know, <laughs> all this this happy optimism yeah. that Bones McCoy is known for. Oh, yeah. I swear, he must, he must have ulcers from just worrying about Kirk. Of course, of course. <laughs> but as the movie points out itself a little later on, there is a specific bond that we see play out between these three characters yeah. in almost every movie. There's Kirk, there's Bones, and there's Spock. Right. And Bones pretends to hate Spock, but secretly loves him. And Kirk just sort of is very go with the flow with everything, which makes Bones very, very tense. <laughs> because because Bones is very intense. He's a yes. very intense personality. Whereas Kirk has always been very flighty. Um, pardon the the pun here, but he's always been very flighty. And then you've got Spock, who is just, he's the regulator in the group. He's the (laughs) the voice of reason and logic and everything. And there's a dynamic here that really this particular movie is the only one that I feel goes to the trouble to really explore. Mm. And if you've watched the first four in the series, yeah, there's plenty that goes on between these three, particularly in uh, in Star Trek Three between Bones and Spock. There's a lot that happens there too. But the relationship dynamic here is something that's going to be a focal point for this movie. And I really do like Mm -hmm. that they took the time to actually put this in the spotlight because I always noticed it. But the interactions here between these three, you see moments in this movie that you don't see in any of the other ones. Right. And uh, that's why it's it's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And so now the camera pans back to Kirk just minding his own business and trying to make an ascent. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's Spock. I don't know how he didn't fall right then and there. (laughs) I mean... You don't startle someone who's free climbing a rock, okay? But here comes Spock right up behind Jim. And he tells him that he's been monitoring his progress and basically distracts him until he actually does fall. So now Kirk is falling off this rock and he's pretty high up there. He's got a ways to go before he hits bottom. But we're going to build just a little bit of tension here. And then Spock is going to follow him down. Spock is using these weird jet boots. (laughs) And that's how he's just sort of hovering right there. And when Kirk falls, he uses the power of those boots to go zooming down after him. And just when Kirk is about to become one with the rock below, (laughs) 
Spock grabs him by the ankle and he's going to be okay because there'd be no movie after that. It's just roll credits <laughs> if he actually hit the floor. Yeah. If he actually hit the ground. Just that's that's it. Movie over. Go home. You still have plenty of popcorn. And Bones is watching this whole thing and of course he's freaking out. He comes running to the scene and Kirk makes a very tasteless joke about dropping in for dinner. Mm-hmm. And now back to Nimbus 3. So at this point, the film is going to take us down to Paradise City. Literally. Yeah. Taking us down to Paradise City where the saloons are seedy and the girls look like kitties. And I'm not even kidding. <laughs> and it was at this moment that I thought, yeah, Shatner wrote this all right. Mm. I mean, we're talking female humanoids that are half human, half cat. I can see it all running through William Shatner's head. Now there's some sort of panel having a back office meeting. And there's three of them. There's a Romulan, there's a Terran, and there is a Klingon. And we find out that these people are ambassadors from a collaborative that was trying to improve the socioeconomic condition on this planet. And they did that by sending the entire cast of The Hills Have Eyes to clean up Dodge. <laughs> I mean, think about it. That's yeah. that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Apparently, this entire planet was some kind of experiment, and these three ambassadors are here to figure out what the fuck went wrong and how to fix it. So these three people who will have precious little to do with the actual narrative. So these three people who have precious little to do with much within the narrative besides setting up Cybok's impending coup and communicating his Svengali charm are talking about the goings-on on Nimbus 3. You've got... Caitlin Dar, John Talbot, and a Klingon named Cord. Why they feel like they have to lay the foundation here when it's only the three of them in the room is beyond me. So this is for the audience, okay? They explain what they're doing there. And Caitlin Dar says that 20 years ago, their three governments agreed to help to develop Nimbus 3 altogether. And then she says a new age was born, to which John Talbot responds, well, that new age died a quick death. And the settlers we conned into coming here, at least they're honest about it. Yeah. They were the dregs of the galaxy. More honesty. You know, mm-hmm. they immediately took to fighting amongst themselves. Shocking. You get Shocking. the dregs of the galaxy together and put them all in one place, and that's what's going to happen, folks. We forbade them weapons, but they soon began to fashion their own. Because, of course, they did. Because that's what the rabble of the galaxy is going to do. And Caitlin Dar, I don't know why she thinks that she's going to be the savior of the group here, but she chimes in with, right, then it appears I've arrived just in time. What exactly are you going to do? Have you taken a look around, sweetheart? What do you think you're going to do here? And in the amount of time it's taken for these people to get together and commiserate their failure, Cybok has amassed a pretty big following in a not long expanse of time, kind of like Jesus gathering his disciples and doing a few token tricks to get them to stick around. Amazing, isn't it how easily the weak-minded can be swayed? I mean, look at 45. Nothing he says makes any sense, but people follow him like he's the second fucking coming. And you can apply the same psychology to anyone sitting in the pews of an evangelical church. You can apply it to members of hate groups. You can apply it to pretty much anybody who's easily influenced by someone else. January 6th is another example of this. I mean, we saw what happened there. People got riled up as the result of basically one speech. So it's very easy to do. So Cybok and his posse have now penetrated Paradise City. And Caitlin and Talbot are just standing there bewildered and trying to figure out what to do while Cord decides to pour himself a drink because, you know, it's the Klingon thing to do. Mm. 
Cybok walks in looking very, very smug. It's almost like a Darth Vader entrance, but less threatening. He walks in and declares the council his prisoners. And Talbot says to him, our governments will stop at nothing to ensure our safety. And he just sort of grins and says, that's what I'm counting on. You see, he has his plan in place. Now we get to see the new Enterprise. The old one was destroyed. And now this new ship, you know, meet the new ship, same as the old ship, basically. <laughs> Brand spanking new ship. Everything should be awesome with the Enterprise. But uh, as Scotty points out in his own log, the entire thing is full of bugs. Half the doors don't work. The transporter doesn't work. Not a good thing. No, not a good thing at all. The warp drive, I guess, works because they're able to uh, to get where they're going. But there are problems here. There are problems, and Scotty is just a little bit stressed out at this point. But Uhura brings him some lunch. It kind of sort of looks like there's something going on here between these two. They ship out these characters in every iteration of this. Oh, yeah. Every character gets shipped out with one of the other ones at some point. <laughs> but for this movie, it is Scotty and Uhura's turn to be warm for each other's form. So now Scotty's letting his guard down a little bit. But then, uh-oh... Starfleet Command breaks in and there and tells them that there's a priority seven situation in the neutral zone. Scotty is a bit perturbed because apparently, quote, this new ship must have been put together by monkeys. And there are things that need tweaking. Lots of things. But duty calls. So it's time to reassemble the crew. Shore leave is canceled, but apparently Sulu and Chekhov get the memo first because we jump from a sunny day where they are lost out in the woods and have to be rescued so that they could be brought back on board. <laughs> and almost immediately we jump cut to a night scene where we've got the Fab Three sitting around a campfire. And they're really doing the whole, uh, the whole rustic camping experience thing, right down to Bones loudly, loudly banging a... Uh, uh, not not banging. He's not loudly. I can't imagine Bones loudly banging anything. Um, he's he's loudly hitting the uh, the triangle. Yeah, the, and yelling the yeah. "Come and get it!" While everyone is like literally right there within an earshot, <laughs> literally right there around the campfire. But Bones has worked hard on this dinner, and he wants people to enjoy it. So come and get it. Come and get it. And again, the whole rustic camping thing. They're they're trying so hard to be rugged campers, you know, who actually know what the fuck they're doing. But they really don't. They're having, yeah, no, they, they absolutely do not. They're having beans for dinner. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I guess, the stereotypical 20th century camping sort of thing to do. I think yes. that's what they're going for. They're, yeah. They're trying to be very 20th century here. This is one of my favorite parts because now they're sitting around eating the beans. Spock, I guess, has... A little bit of a misgiving about the cuisine, but Bones tells him, you know, if you don't try it, you're going to be not only insulting me, but generations of McCoys. So Spock tries the beans and kind of likes them. He says, it's got a flavor that I'm not familiar with. And Bones is like, oh, well, that's the secret ingredient. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and Kirk, of course, asks if there's any more of that secret ingredient. Spock, of course, puts two and two together and says, I assume that this secret ingredient you're talking about is alcohol. And it is. It's Kentucky whiskey. <laughs> so uh, now they're passing around the bottle and eating beans. And as Kirk so eloquently puts it, their dinner is quite the explosive combination at this yeah. point. Then we get Bones's diatribe about how Kirk has always been irresponsible. He says that you really pissed me off, Jim, and goes on this diatribe. 
about how human life is far too precious to risk on crazy stunts. He says, maybe it didn't cross that macho mind of yours, that you should have been killed when you fell off that mountain. And Kirk says, it crossed my mind. And as I fell, I knew I wouldn't die. And Spock says, I don't understand. And Kirk says, I've always known I'll die alone. And they're going to wait like three more movies to address that one. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, it, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, how, how, how exactly do you know this? It's not like Hodor no. who could see himself dying, holding the door. And that's where he just disappeared inside himself and just started Hodoring everywhere. This is just Kirk and his signature brand of machismo coming out. Yeah. Pretty so, much. Uh, and now for one of my favorite moments in Star Trek history, where Spock is trying so hard to assimilate to this whole camping thing. Mm-hmm. He's got this little pocket replicator and he produces what he refers to as a marshmallow. <laughs> Not a marshmallow, a, a marshmallow. I've always thought that that was kind of precious. Yeah. The is. way that he referred to it as a marshmallow. <laughs> and so they're roasting marshmallows and having a sing-along, and they decide on row, row, row your boat. I mean, I would have loved to have hear what Moon Over Rigel 7 actually sounds like, but I'll yeah. take row, row, row your boat. And so they're, they're trying to establish the round with this, and Spock is just sort of sitting there not understanding what the hell is going on, <laughs> and Kirk notices that he's not uh, joining in and says, Spock, what's going on? And Spock says that he fails to see the logic of the song, because life is not a dream. So bookmark this idea. It's going to come back a little later. So my question right now is, why have these people not been called back to the Enterprise yet? I'm starting to smell conspiracy, but there's a <laughs> there's a much, much less sinister reason why they haven't been called back. And it pretty much involved Kirk leaving his communicator on board. Okay, I can relate to this, because yeah. unless I'm sitting at home with COVID... I don't call parents on my cell phone. And the reason for that is that I don't want them calling me on my cell phone when I'm off. Yeah. You know, I want my Sundays to be my Sundays. And I want my downtime to be my downtime. So I don't just hand out my cell phone number. And it's the exact same thing here. He wants his downtime, damn it. But, Mm. you know, this is Star Trek. He's not going to be able to hide from them forever. So now everybody is being picked up from their camping trip because the transporters aren't working uh, aboard the Enterprise, so they can't just beam up. So they're sending shuttles to bring everybody back. And now we jump cut back out into the depths of space, and we watch as Voyager 2 floats by. Voyager is a recurring theme in the Star Trek movies, too. We see the satellite fly by, and then in the background, we see a Klingon bird of prey decloak. And, you know, that's a wrap for... Voyager 2 in short form because the captain of this particular vessel is basically going to turn out to be this movie's Jack Sparrow. (laughs) And the funny thing is that it's the Klingons who respond first to the distress call on Nimbus 3 because obviously it's time to go rescue Cord, but Claw, he's the Jack Sparrow character in this, is only interested in bullying other ships at this point. You know, he had fun blowing Voyager 2 out of existence. But now he boldly proclaims his desire for a target that fights back and mentions that he's always wanted to engage a Federation starship. Oh, boy. Now for one of those extra long scenes where the audience is supposed to be in awe of the Enterprise going up (laughs) and down the entire ship. 
and trying to create that ooh and ah factor. Yeah. You know, like that hour and a half long scene in TMP where <laughs> all we're yeah. doing is looking at the Enterprise. Yeah, um, it's it's starship porn. Yeah, kind of. Kind of, but uh, I think they learned their lesson with TMP and yeah. didn't uh, didn't take it any further. That's Star Trek: The Motion Picture for the un- for the uninitiated. I'm using too much Trekkie speak. I've got to kind of keep this, you know, I've got to keep the military language out of it for the civilians. I know, and in all fairness, the ship does have its issues, and we get to see several of them. But Kirk has his orders, so ready or not, the Enterprise is now on its way to Nimbus Three. And now we get to actually watch their distress call. And Caitlin Dar is on view screen. And she says, a short time ago, we surrendered ourselves to the forces of the Galactic Army of Light. Isn't that a fitting name for this group of people? Yes. At this moment, we are in their protective custody. Their leader assures us that we will be treated humanely as long as we cooperate with his demands. I believe his sincerity. It's kind of like any other hostage video where you know that they've got guns pointed at him right off camera. Mm. I believe his sincerity. He requests that you send a Federation starship to parlay for our release at once. Be assured that we are in good health and would appreciate your immediate response. And then in Barge's Cybok, and he says, I deeply regret this desperate act, but these are desperate times. I have no desire to harm these innocents, but do not put me to the test. I implore you. I implore you to respond immediately. So, of course, Spock is there watching all of this, and he's looking very taken aback, and Kirk notices, and Kirk says, what is it? You look like you've just seen a ghost, and Spock says, perhaps I have, Captain. Now, Kirk and Bones get Spock alone on what looks to me like forward observation on the Enterprise. They're all in this room, and they're having this little private powwow trying to get some information about who this Vulcan might be. And Spock starts out his story like this. He says there was a young student, exceptionally gifted, possessing great intelligence. It was assumed that one day he would take his place amongst the great scholars of Vulcan, but he was a revolutionary. The knowledge and experience he sought were forbidden by Vulcan belief. He rejected his logical upbringing. He embraced the animal passions of our ancestors because he believed the key to self-knowledge was emotion and not logic. And, of course, Bones is is just loving this part of it. He's like, imagine that, a passionate Vulcan. So Spock then continues with when he encouraged others to follow him, he was banished from Vulcan never to return. So there is Cybok's little backstory, okay? They went from thinking that he was going to be one of the greatest minds in Vulcan history to literally kicking him off planet, okay? (laughs) So that is where we pick up Cybok's story. Now, keep in mind, this is all that Spock cares to divulge at this point, but there is more. So Enterprise then arrives at Nimbus 3, but of course, so does Claw's ship. And transporters still aren't working, so the plan is to get the hostages out the old-fashioned way. Why couldn't they just fix the goddamn transporters before they went? Okay, they knew that they were going on a rescue mission. This has always bothered me about this. They knew they were going on a rescue mission. Why not just fix the fucking transporter first? But I guess it would have made what happens next a lot more anticlimactic and again probably time to roll the credits yeah. <laughs> so here we go we're going to rescue them the old-fashioned way they have Chekhov pose as the captain to stall Cybok and give a gentle nudge to release the hostages 
Kurt comes up with a diversion to get Cybok's goons out of the way, and that involves Uhura doing a sexy dance. And, you know, since these guys probably haven't gotten any in quite a while, they walk right into this trap. Yeah. So now, because of that little distraction, the Federation is now able to breach the city, and, of course, Cybok starts freaking out. He apparently thought that this was going to be a lot easier. So Kirk is having a look around the now-deserted lounge and, uh, you know, still manages to uh, to get a little bit of that their female attention, but probably not the kind that he wants. No. No. I mean, he's jumped by one of the cat women. And uh, we, we get to watch this for a couple of minutes. And again, yep, <laughs> Shatner wrote this all right. So after a little tussle with one of the locals here, Finally, Kirk and company find the hostages, and they're safe, just like they said. It's almost over, right? So awesome, except looks like Cybok got to them with his whole taking away their pain thing, and they're on his side now, and our Starfleet heroes are now in custody. Amazing how quickly these things turn around. Hmm. They bring the prisoners to Cybok, and of course Cybok recognizes Spock immediately and walks right up to him and says, Spock, it's me. It's Cybok. And Cybok is actually getting excited because he actually expects that Spock is going to just fall in lockstep with anything that he wants to do. And Spock is just sort of, he's just sort of uh, looking him up and down a bit. And Cybok asks him if he has anything to say, to which Spock responds by telling Cybok that he's under arrest for violation of something like, I think it's 17 areas of the neutral zone treaty or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. And... Of course, he delivers this message in that deadpan Vulcan way, which makes everyone around him start laughing. And Spock says, this really isn't a laughing matter. These are very serious charges, and you need to come with us. And Cybok says, "Uh, well, you know, I would, but I'm not done violating neutral zone treaty yet. For my next act, I'm going to steal something, something very big. I need your starship. And Kirk is just... He, he doesn't know what the fuck to make of this. He's like, you staged all this to get your hands on my ship? And Cybok, of course, you know, he's not used to his prisoners being this outspoken. Mm. So he kind of looks at Kirk with this expression like he can't really make out what he's looking at here and says, who are you? And Kirk introduces himself, tells him who he is. And Cybok just sort of puts two and two together. Yeah, Chekhov isn't really the captain. This guy is the real captain. Oh, hold on. I have the real captain as prisoner. So this is kind of a good thing. But he doesn't like the idea of Spock being his prisoner. So he says, Spock, it would appear you've been given a second chance to join me. What do you say? And Spock responds by simply telling him, I am a Starfleet officer. And Cybok is like, okay, then I'll take the ship without your help. Meanwhile, the bird of prey has now cloaked, and this is never good news. Anyone who knows anything about Star Trek knows that when a bird of prey cloaks, it's usually not good news. It's worse news when they uncloak, because until the next movie, a bird of prey can't fire when it's cloaked. Right. So it's even worse news when it uncloaks, but everything that the Klingons do has some sort of sinister uh, intent behind it. So those of us in the know, we watch the ship disappear, and we're like, oh, shit, what's about to happen? And the crew of the Enterprise know that they need to raise shields. But the problem is that the shuttle that they believe to be carrying their captain, first officer, and doctor, and no one else who they might not want on board, can't dock with the shields raised. 
So Cybok has the captain bringing him back to the ship. And being the kind of dick that he is, you know, and probably not understanding anywhere near as well as a Starfleet captain what's going on right out there in front of them. He tells them to remain on course. And, you know, the the problem here is that this decision will likely result in the Klingons blowing the shuttle to bits. But here's the thing about Cybok. He's about as good a listener as Anakin Skywalker. So it's not easy convincing him to do anything but what he has his mind set on. He does allow Kirk to try to get them to the ship safely, but he's not going to hide on the planet, okay? That's just not a thing that he's going to let happen. So the plan is to fly in manually. And this is, I mean, as good a pilot as Sulu is, this is one of the most ham-handed things that I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It's not supposed to work this way. It's just not. There are protocols in place. They need to lower the shields. And they need to bring the the shuttle in via tractor beam. That's Starfleet protocol right there. But when you don't want to have your your shields lowered for 15 seconds, an eternity that leaves you open to Klingon attack, you get creative. So Sulu pilots the shuttle badly into the bay, and the Klingons, they see their opportunity, and they fire. But but Chekhov is just a little bit faster than they are. You know, I'm impressed with Chekhov. At this moment, you don't get to see him do anywhere near enough, as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't get anywhere near enough screen time. And when they do give him significant screen time, it's to have him running around San Francisco during the Cold War, asking about the nuclear vessels with a Russian accent. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that they usually let him do. So this is kind of a heroic moment for him because he knows what's about to happen. And he knows that their captain is safely back on board. He gives the order warp speed now. And boom, goodbye Enterprise. And there's the Klingon torpedo just sort of flying aimlessly through space. And Claw is equal parts pissed and impressed Mm. at, uh, at what's going on here. Even to the point of just looking at that screen in awe and saying, he's good. And the funny thing is, Kirk had nothing to do with it, really. I mean, it was, I mean, he, he had, uh, he had his role, but it was the crew of the Enterprise who, with all due respect, they've worked with him for quite a while. So they've picked up a lot, but the point is they're safe, at least for the time being. They escape and they're warping their way through the cosmos and uh, Cybok and Kirk are now, and, you know, Cybok tells Kirk he needs to bring him to the bridge. So, you know, of course, Kirk is going to pretend to be compliant for a second here, but then he tries to overtake Cybok. It doesn't really work that well. There's a big struggle. Cybok does drop his gun, and the gun literally slides across the floor and stops at Spock's feet. And again, for all intents and purposes, we should be in our rights to be sitting here thinking, okay, that's it. It's almost over. Again. But wait. Spock picks up the gun and points it at Cybok, telling him to surrender. And Cybok looks at him and says, no, you'll have to kill me, which Kirk very emphatically tells him to do. Shoot him, he yells, but Spock just can't do it. And Cybok basically just takes back the gun. There's like no struggle here. He literally takes back the gun with no resistance whatsoever. And Kirk is somewhere between disappointed, utterly bewildered, and pissed the fuck off at this moment in time. And Caitlin is there. She tells him not to be afraid. And, oh my God, is she drunk on the Kool-Aid at this point? <laughs> and it's not long before we find out why it was that Spock couldn't kill Cybok. 
the Fab Three have been thrown in the brig together. Okay, <laughs> Bones, uh, Kirk, and Spock are now locked up in the brig, and Kirk, of course, starts going off on Spock about, well, you know, why didn't you do what I told you to do? You know, we could have ended this right there. And Spock says, the problem is, I was being asked to kill my brother. And Kirk is like, look, I understand he's a fellow Vulcan. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Cybok is also a son of Sarek. And immediately Kirk accuses him of making it up. But as Spock is quick to point out more than once in this movie, he's like, I'm a Vulcan, I can't lie. I don't have a brother, but I do have a half-brother. And that is where we get Cybok. So, of course, it's, it amazes me how many years have these people worked together. Yeah, right. And there's never been a mention of Spock having a half-brother. It is canon, though. But this is kind of the first that most of us are hearing about this. And it kind of gets a little bit worse from here because, let's just say Cybok is making his rounds through the crew. And he's adequately gotten to both Uhura and Sulu at this point. And it's amazing to me the parallels here, the vacant expressions mm. and the joy unspeakable and full of glory aspect to all of this, where all of a sudden everyone is just happy, happy, happy because this dude has taken their pain away. And they all, they're, they're all acting in this, this spacey, airy kind of way that you can see in pretty much any evangelical church. And you know what? They all were acting like that guy that I keep talking about in, in college, the one that came and spoke during our class that day. They all have that same vacant air, yeah. and it was very, very familiar. I even sat there in the theater watching this, thinking to myself, it looks like they just uh, they just had a, a really, really good altar call. <laughs> but uh, yeah, one by one, the crew are dropping like flies in terms of their resistance to this whole share your pain thing. Back in the brig, Kirk is convinced that they can escape, but Spock bursts his bubble adequately he says that it's inescapable and he should know he says this is a new brig captain it is escape proof the designers tested it using the most intelligent and resourceful person they could find and he failed to escape and kirk just sort of looks at him and says this person he didn't by any chance have pointed ears and an unerring capacity for getting his shipmates into trouble did he and spock looks at him and says he did have pointed ears <laughs> that is his way of offering his confession there. So the brig is escape-proof, and he knows. So now Cybok is going to explain everything. We're going to get his entire manifesto here mm. that I'm not going to read through in its entirety. But basically, the whole purpose behind this stems from a spiritual belief of Cybok that is held by apparently a lot of cultures on a lot of planets and a lot of galaxies. Because at the end of the day, humanoids are humanoids. Yeah. And if some of the later movies are any indicator, they all kind of start out with pagan cultures and traditions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So he starts by reminiscing about the glory days before Vulcan became overrun with all this logic BS. And people were passionate. They were ruled by their emotions. They felt with their hearts. They made love with their hearts. They believed with their hearts. And above all else, and here it comes... They believed in a place in which these questions of existence would be answered. Modern dogma tells us this place is a myth. And modern dogma is right. <laughs> um, <laughs> a fantasy concocted by pagans. And here comes the evangelistic pitch here. Uh -huh. It is no fantasy. I tell you, it exists. My brothers, 
we have been chosen to undertake the greatest adventure of all time, the discovery of Shakari. And I'm thinking, isn't that a Reiki symbol? I... Uh, never mind. That's Shokure. Yeah, and I'm sure that was accidental, too. Mm. Absolutely, totally and completely accidental. Yeah. But, you know, let's be fair. It also sounds a lot like Shangri-La and probably has the exact same meaning. And to me, you know what else it sounds like? It sounds like when Christians start talking in their hopelessly extra-biblical way about the afterlife. But Cybok is offering a value-added proposition and thinks that he can prove this place exists without anyone dying. He says, our destination, the planet Shakari, lies beyond the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. And, of course, that gets Kirk's attention right away. And he just, he kind of looks at him and says, the center of the galaxy? And Spock says, that's where Shakari is able to exist. But the center of the galaxy can't be reached. No ship has ever gone into the Great Barrier. No probe has ever returned. And Spock, I don't know if he's trying to play the role of the apologist here or if he's trying to just give a little bit of reassurance in what looks like a very hopeless situation, but he does offer that Cybok possessed the keenest intellect that he had ever known. And at this point, I'm, start, I'm thinking to myself, don't tell me you believe him. Even smart people can be pretty fucking stupid at times. And it's true. But Kirk says, my only concern is getting the ship back. When that's done... And Cybok is in here, meaning the brig. You can debate Shakari until you're green in the face. Until then, you're either with me or you're not. And this gave me a little bit of an uh-oh moment back in the day, too. Because instead of pledging his undying loyalty, Spock simply says, I am here, Captain. Which could mean any number of things. I think in the context of this conversation, it basically means, well... I'm here and I'm not with him. So you can put two and two together. That's pretty much how I interpreted that one. And he's been given the all clear to join Cybok twice now. And he's turned it down both times. So in the midst of this discussion, we start hearing tapping. And apparently not everyone on the ship has drunk the Kool-Aid just yet because we're hearing what they quickly identify as Morse code. And the words stand back being spelled out. So they do in the nick of time because boom, the door blasts open and there's Scotty. And he just sort of pokes his head in and says, what are you standing around for? Don't you guys know a jailbreak when you see one? So now they're out of their escape proof brig and they need to figure out what they're going to do next. So what they really need to do is send a distress call to Starfleet which means either going to the bridge, which is a very bad idea at this moment in time, or using the emergency sending apparatus, which is for reasons unknown in the forward observation deck. I still don't get that. That's a little bit less risky. Not much, but a little. Only one problem. They literally have to climb to it through good old turbo shaft number three. And the only reason that's safe is because it's closed for repairs, like most of the ship at this point. <laughs> And we're talking 60-plus decks of climbing, 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 climbing that they have to do. So Bones and Kirk start their ascent. And then we watch Spock just sort of duck out. And again, I'm thinking, oh, shit. Cybok actually got to him, and he's been playing the role for a little while here. But uh, we find out in a couple of seconds what he's actually up to. And if you And just, you know couple of minutes later they, they've, they've been climbing for a little bit but not for very long they're not making a whole lot of progress 
And here comes Spock with those same jet boots that we saw at the beginning. I'm not sure if he was carrying them around or if he knew where to find more. They just sort of reappear. And they're wicked useful at the moment, so why don't we just go ahead and use them? So Bones and Kirk are now hanging on to Spock, and they start falling because there's just too much weight with the amount of power that these things have set to normal, okay? <laughs> so they're falling, 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 and they're about to fall right into the hands of the Kool-Aid crew, all right? <laughs> and then at the very last second, Spock makes the executive decision to hit the turbo boost on the boots, and psh, right up they go at dangerous speeds. I'm, I'm thinking at this point about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and the fizzy <laughs> lifting drinks. Yeah. And, okay, yeah, let's let's not have these people sliced up in the fan, okay? Mm. Which, and, and I'm just hoping, are we going to stop before they just hit their heads on the top of the ship at this point? And they do because it's Star Trek and, we're, and it's not time to roll the credits yet. <laughs> so uh, everything works out and they make it to forward observation and they send their distress call. And again, there's so many moments in this movie where it's like, oh, it's almost over. It's almost resolved. Everything's going to be fine now. But here's the problem. The distress call gets through. Yay, right? To the Klingons. Shit. Okay. So, and, and it's amazing to me how this fledgling little Klingon crew member is able to put on the perfect American accent. Absolutely <laughs> perfect. Perfect English. Perfect diction. All of it. So they're relieved. They think that their message has gotten through. They think that Starfleet is coming to help at this point. They're about to leave the observation deck right through the front door, mind you. I mean, nothing risky about that. But, uh, of course, Cybok and some of his pirates show up to greet them. And Cybok is uh, feeling kind of smug at the moment. And he says, I trust your message was received. And Kirk says, you can't expect us to stand by while you take the ship into the Great Barrier. And, of course, here, here we go again with more of that hyper-spiritual rhetoric that we were all familiar with when we were part of this thing called evangelical Christianity. Cybox says, what you fear is the unknown. The people of your planet once believed their world was flat. Columbus proved it was round. They said the sound barrier could never be broken, and then it was broken. They said warp speed could never be achieved. The Great Barrier is the ultimate expression of this universal fear. It is an extension of personal fear. Captain Kirk, I so much want your understanding and I want your respect. Are you afraid to hear me out? And, you know, that's another instrument that they use. It's like, are you afraid to learn something about yourself? Are you afraid to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you need grace and all that? It, all of these things are running through my head the first time I'm watching this in, 80, in 89. It's all running through my head. And then, of course, there's this whole friendship and camaraderie thing that they like to push on you, too. Cybox says, we're going to find the answers right here amid the stars of our own galaxy. We shall seek the answers together. So we got this whole we're all in this together thing. We're going to disciple you through the whole the whole process here, buddy. Just have faith and everything's going to work out just fine. And I'm thinking at this moment, he sure does have the cult leader thing down, doesn't he? And like to the nth degree. But honestly, if I'm going to be fair about this, he's a bit more honest than most of your average cult leaders out there. He's at least willing to attempt to provide proof or at a minimum, he hopes that in the end, he'll have that proof to provide. He sincerely wants this to be legit, whereas most cult leaders understand how full of shit they actually are. 
But just like religion, and here's the real convenient part of this, if he's wrong, everyone will be dead and unaware that they were ever so badly duped. So as far as he's concerned, it's win-win. Now, Scotty was integral in these guys escaping, and I kind of left out the part where he throws this line about how he knows the ship like the back of his hand and immediately proceeds to bonk his head so hard that he uh, that he, he blacks out. <laughs> so Scotty now wakes up in sickbay with a big goose egg, and uh, he discovers the awful truth of his girlfriend's conversion. Because now Uhura is trying really hard to draw him in mm-hmm. to the whole share your pain thing. And it is at this point that we get one of the pivotal conversations in this movie. Cybox says, Shockery, the source, heaven, Eden, call it what you will. The Klingons call it key too. To the Romulans, it's Vortavor. The Andorian word is unpronounceable. Still, every culture shares this common dream of a place from which creation sprang. For us, that place will soon be a reality. To which Kirk responds in his unwaveringly logical way. He says, the only reality I see is that I'm a prisoner on my own ship. What is this power that you have to control the minds of my crew? And here it comes. Cybok says, I don't control their minds. I free them. And Bones asks, how? And Cybok says, by making you face your pain and draw strength from it. Once that's done, fear cannot stop you. And McCoy says, and here's the line, it sounds like brainwashing to me. Hmm. And isn't that the point of the gospel and how it's presented? Hell, this is the heart of all good marketing, pushing the pain points. All products exist to solve a problem. And you know what, folks? The gospel is no exception. Jesus doesn't want to control your mind. He wants to free it. You are mired under the weight of your sin. This is why you aren't happy or in pain. You face your sins and call upon the power of Christ to forgive them. Once that's done, all fear is gone. Your eternity is sure. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. It's the same manipulation with a slightly different objective. So now we get to see one of the other major devices of the gospel playing out here, and that, of course, is a little thing called guilt. In this scene, we learn something very uncomfortable about Bones that kind of explains a good bit about him and his demeanor and the person that he is. So apparently, Bones, at some point in the past, helped his father die. His father had an incurable illness and was in a lot of pain and was begging his son to help him die. Son, release me, like over and over again. And Bones being full of compassion for his father and knowing that there's no way that he can be healed or even kept comfortable through the end stages of whatever this illness is that he had. They never really get into that. But not even in the world of Star Trek is there a cure for everything. So Bones basically does the equivalent of pulling the plug on his dying father. And you can see the peace that kind of washes over his face as he just disappears. And Bones is holding the lifeless face of his father in his hands. And we're watching just this last moment between the two of them play out. But things are about to get way worse because Cybok, you know, the, the Vulcans can do this. They can get inside your head and they can see what's going on. And he makes Bones tell the rest of the story. And Bones says not long after, they found a cure. And Cybok first takes on the role of the summoner, pretty much calling Bones a murderer 
if you had only waited just a little while longer, you would have been able to do and And Bones is like, no, he was in pain. I helped him. I set him free. But Cybok bears down pretty hard on him as the summoner. And then, and then just in a split second's time, he turns the tables and becomes the partner. Bones then succumbs to Cybok's pain-sharing ritual. And now he's a meat puppet just like the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what happens. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Mm. And, but I mean, it really does play out like the typical overly emotional conversion experience. Yeah. And now we've got vacant bones along with vacant everybody else just um, having their pain taken away. And now Cybok sets his uh, crosshairs on Spock. He makes Spock witness his own birth and also see Sarek's indignant reaction to Spock's so human appearance. And Spock stands there watching this. He's kind of on the outside looking in. And he sort of stands there, very contemplative, but not at all spacey like Bones was. You know, this is a different kind of brain that uh, Cybok is working with now. It's not going to be as easy with Spock. So he hit him with the one thing that he knew would be a pain point. Right. And that's his half-humanness and his father's disdain over his half-humanness. You know, dad never really accepted you the way that he accepted me because Cybok was the son of Sarek and a Vulcan princess. So he's all Vulcan. And Spock is kind of this mongrel that all of his life he was reminded that he was kind of a mongrel. And this was supposed to be the thing that pushed him over the edge. But it really doesn't work. You know, Spock is... Uh, he, he's he's taken aback for a moment, but he's not going to buy the whole share your pain thing. He's just not going to. Then we get the next pivotal conversation for this movie. Kirk looks at Cybok and says, what have you done to my friends? And Cybok just plays the innocent game and says, I've done nothing. This is who they are. Didn't you know that? And Kirk says, no, I didn't. Guess what? Because that's not who they are. But Cybok is going to throw out the Hail Mary here anyway. He says, now learn something about yourself. And Kirk says, no, I refuse. And Bones tries to convince him. He says, Jim, try to be open about this. About what? That I've made the wrong choices in my life? That I turned left when I should have turned right? I know what my weaknesses are. I don't need Cybok to take me on a tour of them. And Bones starts to plead again. He says, if you just, and Kirk's like, just what? be brainwashed by this con man? And Bones says, I was wrong. This con man took away my pain. And here it is, my favorite line in this whole thing. I didn't know what to make of it back then. Right. But this is my favorite line in this whole damn movie. Kirk says, damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with the wave of a magic wand. They're things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. And I love how Kirk just completely shoots down the gospel of Cybok with this last line. And of course, the same applies to why giving your life to Jesus is a bad idea. Christianity promises freedom, but what does it deliver? It delivers bondage. It promises release from things like guilt for past actions. Now, there are some people who never believe that the magic wand worked. But there are others for whom it actually works so well that they forget that they still have business with the people they've wronged and responsibility for the damage they've done. 
And no, Jesus is not the only one who matters in the way of forgiveness for the things that we do to others. If you're still one of the ones who thinks it is, I hope for your sake you figure out better. Because Kirk is right here, and it would seem his resistance is enough to snap Bones and Spock right back to reality. Amazing how short a shelf life this kind of rhetoric has when logic is following right on its heels, huh? Right. Yeah. So now Uhura, who is still high on the whole he-took-my-pain-away thing, is on the view screen calling after Cybok, and Cybok tells Kirk that he's going to have to stay there. They're going to be keeping an eye on him, basically. But Bones has already gotten jostled back to reality and basically tells him, yeah, no, I'm not going with you. So Cybok now makes a third attempt to get Spock to go with him, and Spock says, I cannot go with you. And Cybok says, why not? And Spock says, I belong here. Cybok says, I don't understand. And here is Spock's eloquent reply. He says, Cybok, you are my brother, but you do not know me. I am not the outcast boy you left behind those many years ago. Since that time, I found myself and my place, and I know who I am. I cannot go with you. And you know what? I got a little choked up there Yeah. for a second because I could see myself having this conversation with Jesus. Hmm. It's still tough. Yeah. You know, you spend 25 years in a relationship with anyone, real or imagined, and it, it has an impact on you. It has a lasting impact on you. And there's part of me that's still a little bit sad about the things that I've lost. But I concur with Spock here. Since I met Jesus, I found myself and my place, and I know who I am, and I flat out don't need him anymore. And that's that. So at that point, the decision has been made in, inside Bones' head, and he says, I guess you better count me out too. And Cybox says, then I'll see you on the other side, and heads off to the bridge. But Kirk does try to stop him one last time. This is his Hail Mary before they go trundling into the, into the Great Barrier. He says, you know we'll never make it through. And Cybox says, what if we do? Will that convince you that my vision was true? And Kirk says, what vision? And here it comes. Cybox says, given to me by God. He waits for me on the other side. To which Kirk responds, you're mad. And Cybox says, am I? We'll see. And yes, yes, we will. So into the Great Barrier they go. And, you know, I'm watching this and I'm like, so far, so good. We're getting a lot of psychedelia. I'm getting a last scene in 2001 vibe off of this just a little bit. But it's very short-lived. This isn't Kubrick, so no. uh, it doesn't go on for terribly long. And just like that, they're through the Great Barrier. And, like, nothing interesting even happens, like, at the end of the Black Hole. At least some interesting shit happens when they're going through the Black Hole. But nothing here going through the Great Barrier. Just a bunch of psychedelia, and then, boom, there they are. And there's this odd-looking planet right beyond. Like, ice blue and completely illuminated with no sun in sight okay it's just this big glowing blue ball and then Chekhov mentions that there's a power emanating from the planet like nothing he's ever seen oh my goodness was Cybok right of course Kirk is intrigued so he's doing what Kirk does he's sending a shuttle to the surface without the slightest inkling of what's going on there and it's just of course himself Bones and Spock and along with Cybok, because, of course, Cybok has to tag along. This is his vision coming true right before their eyes. And, I mean, let's face it. Whether it was his superior intellect or sheer dumb luck, Cybok seems to have been right so far. 
because they made it through without a problem. And there's this planet with a massive power source that they can't even measure. And as they are making their way to the planet's surface, some outside force assumes control of the shuttle. Spock says that he's no longer in control and we're waiting to see if something bad happens, but nothing bad does happen. The ship lands safely and everything is good. They get out and, of course, the air is breathable. This is never a problem on any planet visited by the Federation. Neither is having the right pull of gravity for them to walk around freely. You know, it's just another one of those things. Atmospheric pressure, of course, is perfect, too. Okay, fine. We'll suspend our disbelief like we do with the rest of these planets. It's called science fiction for a reason, after all. So Cybok says that it's just like what he saw in his visions. And he truly believes that God has called him here. Most of the crew are watching what's going on with rapt attention at this point. So rapt, in fact, that no one seems to notice the bird of prey that just uncloaked. And at the moment, it looks like the scouting crew is alone, like very, very alone. They're just sort of wandering around on the surface, and there doesn't seem to be anyone or anything anywhere near them. So they're searching for this god creature where Chekhov spotted the energy surge, and there's literally nothing. So what does Cybok do? He decides to basically yell at it. He's like Roy Neary in Close Encounters at this point, sort of <laughs> yelling up at the sky. He says, we have traveled far by starship. And there it is, the magic fucking word. Suddenly it's dark and a bunch of pillars start poking up out of the ground. And, you know, think Stonehenge, but, you know, just with a little bit more of an eerie feel to it. I'm certain that Shatner was. Yeah. It's more like flanking columns that eventually got me thinking about the end of The Wizard of Oz, which really isn't far off from what's happening here. And I'm also not sure that that was completely unintentional either. So then we get this huge surge of light that literally shoots up and out and away from the planet. Whatever this thing is, it has power. But since I mentioned The Wizard of Oz, it's the same basic thing. The disembodied head that talks a lot of shit. It has some power, but we're about to learn that maybe this god figure ain't really all that. So from within the light, first we get a voice. And the god creature says, brave souls, welcome. And Bones says, is this the voice of God? And air quotes, God says, one voice, many faces. And then you see this montage of uh, basically the faces of a lot of pagan gods. It ends off with the stereotypical old man with the white hair and white beard. And this is the image that this thing decides to take on to woo these people into doing its bid. So he asks them, does this better suit your expectations? And Cybok looks at him in awe and says, Qualsitu, which is his name for God. And God says, it is I. The journey you took to reach me could not have been an easy one. And Cybok says, it was not. The barrier stood between us, but we breached it. And God says, magnificent. You are the first to find me. And how did you breach the barrier? Well, didn't, were you listening a minute ago? <laughs> this, this was my, even before Kirk says anything in a couple of minutes, that's my first thought. 
did you not hear the part about the starship? Mm. Because I'm thinking that's the only reason why the Earth started to open at this point, or the planet started to open up at this point. It's like, ooh, starship, starship. But this thing doesn't seem to be all that bright. And to me, that's the first red flag in all of this. And I'm sure Kirk picked up on it. Again, Cybot tells them that they got there with a starship. And God says, this starship, could it carry my wisdom beyond the Great Barrier? And Cybok is, is very exuberant here. It's like, yes, yes, of course it can. And I'm like, hold on. So the Bible, that's not you then, I guess? <laughs> and God says, then I shall make use of this starship. And Cybok very enthusiastically answers, it'll be your chariot. But Kirk is a little concerned and breaks into the conversation. He says, excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? There's our pivotal line right there. And God does not answer the question directly at all. He just says, bring the ship closer. And Kirk says, I said, what does God need with a starship? And Bones starts freaking out. Jim, what are you doing? And Kirk is like, I'm asking a question in that very matter-of-fact Kirk sort of way. And here is where it all starts to fall apart. God kind of looks at Cybok and says, who is this creature? And Kirk says, who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? And Cybok then decides he's going to play the role of the apologist a little bit here. But God's eyes are now set on Kirk. So Cybok says he has his doubts. And God looks at Kirk and says, you doubt me? And Kirk hits him with this wonderfully simple and honest line that any responsible atheist is going to come out with at that moment in time. And all he says in response is, I seek proof. And really, isn't this all any of us are looking for? But just like the average Christian being asked for proof makes this God thing a little uncomfortable. So Bones decides to add his two cents and cautions Kirk, Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Um, oh, yeah, you actually should. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, you, you totally should. You deserve proof. So then God decides to get a little smug, as what we know to be God does. So he says, then here is the proof you seek, and blue light rays shoot from his eyes, knocking Kirk backwards. Not enough to kill him, just to knock him down like yeah. you know just like a, a schoolyard bully would mm. so kirk looks up at this creature and says why is god angry and cybok chimes in with why have you done this to my friend and god says he doubts me um hold on and i'm thinking okay as i'm watching this now as an atheist i'm like you know, if I didn't know any better, I'd say this probably is him. <laughs> if not, he's got Yahweh's act down pat. Got a problem? Respond with violence and punishment and make them worship me under pain of death. That's the God of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Mm. Now Spock joins the debate, knowing full well he's about to get this movie's version of a dose of force lightning. He says, you have not answered his question. What does God need with a starship? And God answers by pushing him down, too, because that's how God is going to respond in any, uh, in any situation like that. Because this wise, all-knowing being just doesn't have enough wisdom to debate with a lowly human or even a half-human. It all makes sense in the context of the God of the Old Testament as far as I'm concerned. And then God now sets his sights on bones and says, do you doubt me? 
And Bones looks him square in the eye and says, I doubt any god who inflicts pain for his own pleasure. Why he doesn't get zapped, I don't know. But he doesn't. One thing that I will say about these three, though, they've got brass balls, all of them. And they really do have each other's backs under pain of death, which is something that I've always admired about these three and their dynamic. And Cybok is now, he, he's, he doesn't know what the fuck to make of all this. He's just like, he's trying to bring peace to the situation. He says, stop, the God of Shakari wouldn't do this. You know, you can translate it into evangelical terms and say, stop, God is a God of love. He wouldn't act this way. And now for a little inconvenient truth from an unlikely source. God snaps back with Shakari, a vision you created. An eternity I've been imprisoned in this place. The ship. I must have the ship. Now give me what I want. Yep, he throws tantrums like Yahweh does too. And Spock now tries to, to lend just a little bit of support to his brother here and tries to get him to see a little bit of logic. And he just tells Cybok right out loud, Cybok, this is not the god of Shakari or any other god. And Cybok looks at God and says, I don't understand. Reveal yourself to me. And here comes the quintessential sad but true moment. Uh, Metallica fans are going to get this one in just a sec. An image of Cybok strides out of one of God's eyes and says, what's wrong? Don't you like this face? I have so many, but this one suits you best. And all I can think of is, I'm inside, open your eyes. I'm you, sad but true. Don't sue me, Lars. I never downloaded your stuff from Napster, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Cybok is now coming to grips with what's really happening here. And he has his moment of denial. No, no, it's not possible. And God just goes right back to his, to his, uh, his same very short list of demands and says, bring me the ship or I will destroy you. Bring it closer so that I may join with it. Do it or watch these puny things die horribly. And now the truth hits. Cybok is understanding the dangers of blind faith. And he says, what have I done? And then to Spock, he says, this is my doing. This is my arrogance, my vanity. Sad but true, Cybok. Sad but true. And Spock, desperate to save his brother, says, Cybok, we must find a way. And Cybok says, no, save yourselves. Forgive me, brother. Forgive me. And they do the, uh, the Vulcan hand touch thing, whatever it's called. Kind of like what uh, what Spock does at the end of two with Bones tells him to remember. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was kind of the passing of Cybok's intellect and 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 mind and whatnot in that moment. And then he turns away, and with absolutely no other card to play, he strides up to God and says, "I couldn't help but notice your pain. It runs deep. Share it with me," and runs headlong into the face of the God character and starts grappling with his evil twin. And that's the last we're going to see of him. So now Kirk basically tells them to torpedo God, which they do, and which does little more than piss this thing off. A lot. They get all the way back to the shuttle, and of course it won't go anywhere. The God creature is somewhere outside and growling. But here's the thing. Finally, they have the transporter working. Okay, that's good news. 
but they can only beam back two people at a time. That's not great news. So before either of them can say a word of protest, Kirk orders that Bones and Spock be beamed up. And they are. Now it's time to grab Kirk, of course, but blam, there comes the Klingon attack that they have just kind of not noticed was about to happen because they were busy watching these people converse with God. Funny thing is, though, the Klingons have no idea that Kord is aboard the Enterprise. And as the story goes, Kord was kind of a big deal in the Klingon military and that was kind of one of the, one of the reasons why he was chosen to be one of these ambassadors was because of his reputation in the Klingon army. So he's on board the Enterprise, and after watching everything that's that's happened in front of them, pretty much everybody's gone back to normal now. The whole take my pain away thing, not really a thing anymore at this point. They understand how badly they've been duped, and they go right back to being themselves. And that also applies to Kord. So Spock convinces Kord to try and call off the pirates. Now, on the planet, the god creature is doing its very best crate dragon impression, wailing and snarling. And it's kind of looking like Kirk is done. I've always known I'll die alone. Well, here you are, buddy. It's just you and the god creature. And shit's about to go down. But just when it seems like all hope is lost, right over the horizon, here comes that Klingon bird of prey, and the god creature makes one more appearance before the Klingons blast it out of existence, mm-hmm. okay? So that's a wrap on God. And, uh, and now it's just Kirk and the Klingons, and he's standing there with this, I don't fucking believe this expression on his face, and he's like, so it's me you want, you Klingon bastards. What are you waiting for? And as he's saying that, he's beamed aboard the Klingon ship and we see him being escorted from the transporter by two Klingons and immediately he's escorted to the bridge where Kord orders him released. And lo and behold, Kirk sees a couple familiar faces. Apparently, in the end, it was Spock who avenged his brother. I never knew that Spock was a good gunner, but apparently the new gunner aboard this uh, bird of prey was responsible for Kirk coming back safe. And this, honestly, to me, is one of the weirdest scenes in Star Trek history, but I'll take it because the happily ever after part of this is where we're headed next. You know, the conflict has pretty much been resolved. Everyone's back to normal. We lost Cybok, but, you know, he caused enough trouble for us to not feel terribly bad about losing him. (laughs) So now everybody is friends, and it's a, it's a big old uh, love fest in space. The next scene is a big deep space dinner party where Scotty gives Cord his first sip of actual scotch. And of course, his reaction is non-existent because it's alcohol, and that's all he cares about. <laughs> the three ambassadors from the beginning all seem to have normaled up, along with everybody else. No one seems to miss Cybok or his hocus pocus very much. Only Spock, at the very end, says anything about him, and then the last of the really meaningful dialogue in this movie. Bones and Spock are just sort of looking out into the expanse of space, and Kirk walks over to them and says, Cosmic thoughts, gentlemen? And Bones says, we were speculating. Is God really out there? And Kirk says, maybe he's not out there, Bones. Maybe he's right here in the human heart. At that time, I was like, well, yeah, he kind of gets it because Jesus is in my heart, isn't he? Well, here's the thing. And here's the problem with that. Number one, he's right. 
he's absolutely right that God exists in the emotions and the emotional experiences that people have and attribute to him. But the problem is that for some people, that God is the God of your average Tresdius member, the ones that get the whole God is love and Jesus is love thing right. There are those, but then you've also got the God that resides in the emotions of the average person who storms the Capitol because they don't like who got elected president. Mm. So there's that God too. There are lots and lots of gods that can live in the human heart. It's just a matter of, and figuratively speaking, of course, it's just a matter of which one you decide to cling to. What it all boils down to and what God taught us in this movie is that it all comes around to who we are because who we are is what he is going to be and how he's going to manifest within us. And once you understand that, it's easier to get past the entire concept of God and just deal with yourself. You know, it took, it took me 25 years, but mm. I definitely got there. So just to bring it full circle and to close out the story that is Star Trek V, the whole thing ends with the Fab Three resuming their shore leave. And this time, Spock sings along with Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Because there are times when life can feel like a dream, but it never is. We live in a real world, a physical world that doesn't have a spiritual element to it, no matter how badly we would like it to. And that's just the bottom line. And as we close out on the scene of three friends around a campfire, to me, the messaging at the very end of the movie is that we need to focus more on how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, the life that we get to live, the things that we get to experience, the things that we get to see and focus on these things because that's what matters. Wild goose chases trying to find deities beyond the Great Barrier don't matter that much. But a campfire and row, row, row your boat can mean a whole lot more than any church service ever will. And I dare say you'll get way more out of that than you would out of any church service. So that kind of closes the curtain on Star Trek V. And I have just a few words to say to, to round things out tonight. There's a danger in the idea of letting someone or something take away all of your defects of character, all your mistakes, all your bad decisions, because, you know, that's the gospel message in a nutshell. Lay your sins and burdens at the foot of the cross. Well, that's all well and good until you realize that the pain is still there and that any relief you might have felt was all emotional and temporary. The people we hurt remain hurt. The consequences of our actions remain in place. Sure, it may make us feel better, to pray a prayer and give these things over to Christ, but it will never make us better individuals. In fact, it has the potential for making us more selfish and less able to face a little thing called personal responsibility. And it also gives us the wrong perspective on various concepts, not the least of which being forgiveness. And just like Shakari, the concept of a loving God exists only in the minds of believers. It doesn't even exist in the Bible in any first-person context. Sure, there are people from Jesus on down the line that talk about how much God loves us, 
But the proof is in the narrative, isn't it? The God of the Bible is not a God of love by any stretch, and he breeds followers who spend their entire lives with the skewed notion of what love is. Because if God had to kill a bunch of Egyptian kids and livestock to demonstrate his love for the Israelites, what is that love really worth? And, you know, where was he when the Nazis were in power? Think about these things. They matter. Every interpretation of God, whether it's one of love, like the one most of my trustiest friends had constructed, or the one of violence and aggression that white evangelicals, neo-Nazis, and the Klan have constructed, it's correct in the mind of the constructor, and each interpretation influences thought and behavior. Saibach saw Qualsitu as the conduit to Nirvana. All of the questions of the universe will be answered if we can just be bold enough to go just one more place where no one has gone before. And to be fair, his faith did facilitate the answer to the question of what lies beyond the Great Barrier, but what he sought wasn't what he found, was it? If this movie teaches us anything, it's that what's beyond the Great Barrier is bound to disappoint. Spare yourself the disappointment. There is no observable higher power in this universe to pursue. Wisdom, maturity, enlightenment, these things are outgrowths of the things we do and experience the good choices, the bad ones, and everything in between. I'll close this conversation by encouraging you to go where many have gone before, to a place where your pain may follow you, but where you learn from it, grow and mature as a result of it, and take ownership of it. And that means forgetting about having your pain taken away and facing it head on, either through better actions and decisions or through competent avenues of exploration like therapy. That's one of a small list of ways I know that you can share your pain and gain strength from it. Laying it at the foot of the cross and pretending it isn't still there solves nothing. Because your pain, all the places where you've turned left instead of right, should teach you something. Cybok, much like your pastor, would like you to think that dragging your pain into the light involves immediately releasing it and bearing it no more. The reality is quite the opposite. Confront it, deal with it, and live through it. Fix what you can. Make amends where they're due. Take ownership of your imperfections. Because recognizing the value of self-assessment and taking responsibility for the things that cause that pain can make us stronger, smarter, happier, and better people. Better still, it'll also make it easier to reach a place in our lives where we start getting unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.